everyone. My name is Esther Olavarria. I'm a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. We're here today to celebrate the launch of a new book, Latinos and the Nation's Future. It's published by Arte Publico Press at the University of Houston. This book examines the role of Latinos in the United States, past, present, and especially the future as this country's largest minority. Through a collection of essays, the book takes a hard look at the obstacles that Latinos um, face and provide recommendations to, on how to best marshal their energies, their talents, develop their educational and leadership skills and potentials, and help them move into the middle class and shape the future of this nation. We will learn more from our four speakers, Henry Cisneros, Janet Murguia, Sarita Brown, and Nicholas Canelos. Following their brief introductory remarks, we will engage in a conversation with you about the growing Latino population in the United States and what it means for America's future. Let me introduce our, our panelists first. The first speaker is Henry Cisneros. Henry has a long list of accomplishments in government and in the private sector. He served as mayor of San Antonio, the first Hispanic mayor of a major U.S. city. He went on to serve in President Clinton's cabinet as the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. And later he became the president of Univision. Today he's chairman of CityView, a company that finances affordable housing for working families. Henry will discuss why he decided to create this book and present some ideas um, on his thesis that in order for America to succeed, Latinos must succeed. Our next speaker is Janet Murguia. Janet also served in the Clinton administration, ultimately becoming a deputy assistant to the president. She started her Washington career as legislative counsel to former Kansas Congressman Jim Slattery. Today she serves as the president and CEO of the National Organization of La Raza, this nation's largest national Hispanic civil rights and advocacy organization. Janet will discuss the impact of Latinos on the recent elections, as well as how Latino, the Latino voice will affect the future of this country. Next is Sarita Brown. Sarita started her career at the University of Texas in Houston where she created a national model to promote minority success in graduate education. She went on to serve as executive director for the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for Hispanic Americans. She later started the Hispanic Scholarship Fund Institute and today serves as the president of Excelencia in Education, an organization working to increase Latino access to higher education. Sarita will discuss some ideas about how to improve the quality of higher education for Latinos. And our final speaker is Nicolás Canelos. He's an award-winning scholar currently serving as the Brown Foundation Professor of Hispanic Literature at the University of Houston. As founder of Arte Publico Press, the publisher of this book, um, he has devoted a distinguished career to, pu uh, to publishing works of Hispanic literature and scholarship and introducing Hispanic writings to mainstream audiences. Nicolás will present a brief historical overview of the contributions uh, Latinos have made to the United States 
and to the U.S. workforce and how they will contribute in the future. Let's start with Henry. Professor, thank you very much, and thank you to the Center for American Progress. Uh, I want to thank uh, my fellow contributors to this book, uh, each of whom has made an important uh, contribution, especially to thank uh, Nicolás Canelo, who over a 30-year span has built Arte Publico Press into a pioneering publishing house. Uh, many uh, noted Latino authors who've gone on to uh, nationwide careers, even global careers, got their start when Nicolás published them first, uh, like uh, Villaseñor and, 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 and Sandra Cisneros and many others. And he's been very faithful to that mission, and, uh, and, and we have talked now for 10 years <laughs> Sorry about, that. about working. That. It's in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> in its sort of trajectory of, of greatness is the only word that I can describe because we are truly a great nation in economic terms, in uh, innovation, and in research, and uh, social and democratic ideals without the continued advancement of the American Latino community. It is a function of the law of, the law of large numbers. We are now the fastest growing segment of the American population. We are the youngest segment in the American population now the largest minority group in the United States, and the numbers are stunning. I've tended over the last few years to use conservative numbers, which say that of the 130 million Americans who, who this country will grow by between the year uh, 2000 or now, 2005 with 300 million, and 2050, uh, about 63 million of that number will be Latinos almost 50% of all the growth in the United States will be Latinos. Uh, Pew Research and even the census now have some numbers that are even sharper than that. They suggest that the number is something like 90 million additional Latinos in the population mix on top of the 45 million that we are today. So these are huge numbers. And while at the end of the period, 2050, the United States uh, is a very diverse country, uh, much of what matters in terms of uh, consumer markets and economic force and certainly at the younger ages, school age population and the advancement of people into the workforce and those who are going to be the workforce that carry Social Security into the future when there are fewer people 
contributing into the Social Security Fund will be Latinos. This country absolutely must understand that its destiny lies with advancing the prospects of the American Latino population. That's the central idea of this book. It's a very simple case, and the numbers bear it out. And the audience for this project is really twofold. One, the American Latino community itself that frankly has to come, in my view, to a kind of a different kind of uh, understanding of where we are. Um, the case is no longer about just uh, social justice or humanitarian issues, uh, things that ought to be done for us, but it is how we accept our role and responsibility for building the future of the greatest country on earth. We don't want it to, to uh, decline on our watch. So it means a renewed commitment to education, to uh, job and workforce issues. It means uh, a focus on the trajectory of integrating into American society. That's one part of the message is to Latinos. The other part of the message is to the larger American society, and the message is that the American society must remain open as it has been to immigrants and minorities and newcomers. Uh, this is the wrong time to build fences. This is the wrong time to draw up the drawbridge. This is the wrong time to close the path to the middle class because this country can be strong. Its best days can yet be ahead if it adheres to its ideals. Those that we saw at the last time of the great migrations uh, following uh, the turn of the last century uh, when uh, uh, Americanization and integration were big themes in this nation, or even at the end of World War II when the returning servicemen were greeted with the GI Bill for home ownership and the GI Bill for um, uh, college and made possible the prosperity of the 60s and 70s. When we have focused on opening the doors to opportunity and building the middle class, we've succeeded, and one of those moments confronts America again right now. Uh, so we'll talk more in a bit. Uh, my job was to just sort of give the overarching uh, theme of the book, and I think that's the, the case we're trying to make in this project. Thank you. Let's turn next to Janet. Hopefully, why don't we see if your mic is working first? Is my lapel mic working? Is that working? So I don't need this? You okay. Don't need this. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. It's a real privilege for me to be here today and celebrate the launch of this uh, this wonderful book, The Latinos and the Nation's Future, I believe it will provide a blueprint for many policymakers and others interested in how this country's largest minority is shaping America's present and the considerable role it will play in the future, as you've heard from Henry. And I just can't tell you how much I want to thank uh, Henry Cisneros, someone whom I admire very much, who's been a role model and a mentor for many of us young Latino professionals. Uh, when there weren't very many role models out there, uh, Henry always extended himself uh, to those of us who are working our way through these different roles, and uh, I really thank him for the service that he's given to our community and to the country. I also want to commend the other contributors to this book. It's really been a privilege to be part of this whole effort, and I do think it is a landmark publication. You know, one clear sign of the impact Latinos are having and will have on our country uh, was the role that we played in this election. Uh, this was a historic election for the country, but it was also a historic one for our community. Uh, many of you in, in this room and so many across the country uh, were part of an unprecedented mobilization of Latino voters. Uh, when the goal of this mobilization was announced a couple of years ago, 
of the largest turnout of Latino voters ever. That was our goal. Many questioned, um, can we turn out the Latino vote? Uh, can we mobilize? Can we make a difference in this election? And uh, I think we see that the answer now is yes, we can. <laughs> and yes, we did. Uh, it was uh, really a remarkable effort uh, that so many at different levels in our community played a role in with the help of different partners. Uh, it is estimated that slightly more than 10 million Latino voters uh, went to the polls in November, uh, nearly 3 million more than in 2004. That's a 32% increase from uh, 2004 in just four years. And there's no question that our turnout made a difference. The largest increases in share of Latino voters were in three states, uh, really four, but three in particular where we could see the difference uh, play a role. Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, and of course, Florida. Uh, these uh, were also three of the key battleground states that went from red to blue in 2004, and most analysts attribute this to the Latino vote. And we had a greater share of new voters. Just last week, the Pew Hispanic Center released a poll that 21% of Latinos were first-time voters compared to 8% of the general population. And a whopping 40% of Latinos, 18 to 29, voted for the first time. So we saw something very special and unique happen here that has helped us move in the right direction to really start uh, finding that political voice for our community that ultimately not only made a difference in this election, but also can make a difference for the future if we continue to grow and build on that. That poll also noted that three quarters of Latinos surveyed were more interested in the 2008 election than they were in the 2004 election. Our challenge now is to sustain, sustain and grow that enthusiasm, not only in future elections, but throughout the entire political process. We have to make sure that those Latinos who didn't get a chance to naturalize in time for this election are citizens by the time of the next election. We need to make sure we keep registering new voters. It's so important for us to still fill that gap. And we should be encouraging Latinos to go beyond just the marches and protests, which were so effective in stirring that initial uh, movement uh, for our community to find a way that they can make their views known to policymakers as they debate the legislation that affects our community. Letters and phone calls, emails and blogs. And as a, our community's political um, power grows, more Latinos have to participate, volunteer, and ultimately run for office themselves. We need to see that kind of evolution based on the role that we played in this election if we're ultimately gonna have that full potential within our political voice. And we need to leverage our growing clout and partnerships to hold policymakers accountable, both those we supported and those we didn't. We should let those we didn't support know why and also what they need to do to gain our support. At the end of the day, we need to have the Latino perspective represented in every aspect of governing. Latinos have to be at all levels of government, including the inner circles of all the leadership in the administration and Congress. So basically, the election is over but our movement continues, and we must leverage that energy and enthusiasm now into an evolution of advocacy and really making a difference within the entire political process. I'm 
close by just saying that I was struck by some of the words that I heard uh, by President Obama at his State of the Union. He talked about the need to remake America and to renew our American values. I can't think of a community that is most prepared to help remake America and to renew those values, those values that are Latino values, are the American values that can help move not only our community forward, but this entire nation forward. So that's what we have to look forward to. Thank you. Sarita, please. On the heels of that rousing comment, <laughs> uh, the focus for education is really one of human capital. The opportunity that I had to address this issue of education in the context of the full array of issues and challenges that we face as a country is in fact how today all educators, all policymakers, everyone must focus on education. For the United States to be competitive in a global economy, we must have not only trained individuals, well-trained individuals, and a growing proportion of those who are, make up today's college goers are Latinos. That said, I can't imagine that any of you who are gathered here today and listening do not know the dire statistics as it relates to today's educational achievement levels. While we begin as a community on par with most others in terms of the earliest of grades, by the time young Latinos move into middle school, the numbers begin to drop. And when we look at what goes on in terms of high school, it's a heartache. Those statistics have been true for almost 30 years. And yet, somehow, we have managed to move through. We have managed to go on. Put that in perspective with the kinds of statistics that Henry shared, the growing proportion of Latinos in this country. If 50% of the growth of America will be Latinos, can we afford to see 50% of our population drop away without a high school diploma? That is the way we start the discussion. The issue of the convergence between the current productivity of our public school systems going on in terms of college going, college degree production, and you've heard one of the areas of keen interest for me personally and professionally is doctoral and professional education. Can we afford to simply let those statistics continue? I don't think anyone involved with this book project and gathered here today would say yes. So then the question becomes, what do we do? I've had the privilege to work on this challenge literally from the beginning of my career. And as you heard from my introduction, the venue that I've chosen now is the nonprofit sector. To work in the company of organizations such as the National Council of La Raza and many others throughout the country in education, in institutions of higher education, to focus on what works. And that requires real sober-eyed views of the trend lines for Latinos. We know that we need to do better, but where are the areas of opportunity? The work that Excelencia in Education has done since the beginning of 2004 has mined that data, not to simply talk about where there is a need to do more, but where there is a great opportunity to intervene. Some of the statistics that we focus on in our problem solving have to do with Latino college goers because these are the people who have invested in themselves, whose families have invested in getting them that far, and who institutions of higher education say they need and want. As a society, we want to see them succeed. So we look at those who are going to college. 
Most are likely to be the first in their family to attend college, most likely to live with their parents and commute to classes, most likely to enroll part-time and work off campus, most likely to attend public two-year institutions, community colleges, and most likely to need financial aid. We would suggest as a logical exercise that problem solving and policy making start with this profile. Abandon the practices that higher education continues to use to call these students non-traditional and say these are our students and align the programs and services and institutional practices and state level and federal level policy that assumes this is today's student population and serve them well. In our work over the last four years, that exercise has brought us to bright spots all over this country. Institutions that embrace the idea that the students who walk in the door are as prepared as they can be and that the job for these institutions is to meet their educational needs with a, with a practice, financial aid, an open door that says we need you, and an investment in their learning. The work that we've been doing over these past years show us that there are places all over this country, both K-12 systems, institutions, and states that are looking at this question of how do we respond from a tactical standpoint with practiced efforts to capture this population. That said, too few are doing it. So in the context of a conversation such as one that we're having today, how can we together make this century, the, the continuing century for this country? It is to look at the unadulterated belief that Latinos have in education. If there is one myth which has been the obstacle to direct intervention, it is the myth that Latino students and their families are not committed to an educational success, that they do not see the merits of an education. That is not the case at all. Polling data, hard evidence, interviews with students and practices the belief is there. It is the marriage of the kind of information that middle-class families have and share, usually in the pleasure of their homes, that we must make available to this thriving population of ambitious individuals who believe that education is what will be necessary for their success. That should not be questioned. So then we must move to policymakers and look for those who are our champions, who see the opportunity in serving this population. What all of us can do is to know who they are, to know the institutions that perform well and serve Latino students, and to advocate that any institution that does not be criticized, be critical ourselves, but to hold the standard to the performance of success for Latino students. Ours is an ongoing effort that both takes the global argument of human capital, the proportion of the, uh, this America that is Latino, sees it as the raw talent, and then holds the standard of our educational system to capture that talent, serve it well, and make sure that we are here to serve in the role that we wish to. 
There's much that we would like to share, and hopefully today is the beginning of a long-term discussion for people who care about this country and the role that Latinos will play in it. Nicolás? Well, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, Henry Cisneros for bringing this visionary book to Arte Publico Press, the University of Houston. Any publishing house in the nation would have been proud to issue this book, but he brought it to a small academic-based publishing house, and we are delighted that we can serve as a forum for these kinds of ideas and moving the nation forward. And of course, I'd like to thank the participants in the book, the collaborators, and, and all of the knowledge that they are bringing uh, out into the public that, that has been circulating among us and among uh, stakeholders for a number of years, but has been rarely brought forth in this kind of a forum. As a cultural historian, I'd like to say that it's time to stop treating and looking at Latinos as foreigners or immigrants. Uh, Latinos have been here from before the United States was founded. Uh, on the continental, what became the continental of the United, United States, Latinos forged cities and civilizations before Plymouth Rock. Uh, they laid down the, the roads that eventually became highways and then superhighways in the United States. They laid out the grids of all the cities that we know of that bear Hispanic names. They introduced mining technology and ranching and the first uh, metal plow and, and the first wine grapes and all kinds of things that we take for granted today, more so uh, laws that we, we don't even know, think about that have become part of uh, American life, such as common property, uh, family law, laws about adoption, laws about land use and water use. Onward and onward, we can go on with this as those laws pass from the Mexican-Hispanic past, sometimes having roots in, in 12th century Spain, and going into the constitutions of Texas, New Mexico, Colorado, Miami, uh, este, Florida, <laughs> Louisiana, <laughs> California, Nevada. Many of these states had bilingual constitutions. Many of these states had bilingual books of law. And these, thing, these laws have survived, and we take them for granted as part of our American identity. So many other facets in the American past that have Hispanic roots are what we do the, in the air we breathe every single day. Even in the Northeast, there were colonies of Spanish speakers founded before the United States existed. The commercial ties with the Caribbean uh, existed from the 17th and 18th century. They, they led to the founding of colonies of, of Spanish speakers in Philadelphia, New York, Baltimore, Boston. If you go further south, Charleston, New Orleans. And all of those communities became bases for the development of Hispanic culture within the United States. And not, not only within the United States, but always maintaining ties with the rest of the Hispanic world. And this has been part of our substance, part of our culture. Always there has been a connection with the rest of the Spanish-speaking world from these shores. And a give and take, inputs and outputs throughout the whole history of the United States. I direct a, a research project which has the goal of finding all of the documents and books and manuscripts created by Latinos from the beginning up to 1960. And we have found uh, hundreds of thousands of documents. We've found thousands of books. And at each stage in American history, we see that these documents prove that we have not only participated in 
American culture, American public culture, but we have always thought about and contributed to the issues as they marched across American history from the war of independence fought against uh, England, uh, the, the uh, Civil War, all of the wars of the United States, uh, Latinos have been important participants. Uh, we have worried about and fought for uh, the abolition of slavery. In fact, in most of the Latin American, most of the Spanish American countries, abolition of slavery was achieved during independence as contrary to the United States. So within the boundaries of the U.S. and the areas that were soon to be incorporated to the U.S., slavery did, uh, did not exist in those areas. And those were kinds of things that we brought with us into the United States, the abolition of slavery. We've talked about uh, women's suffrage forever. We've talked about all kinds of national issues and contributed them. In fact, in, in, in the, the sphere of, of women and, and uh, law, women could inherit property in the Hispanic legal tradition. They could keep their names. They could participate in, in as I said before, community property, all kinds of issues that we, again, I say, we take for granted. Um, so I, I say it's time to, take, uh, to turn away from the immigration issue that is so debated in the media and think about this. Latinos have always been here, and they're going to stay. <laughs> and they're forming an unanticipated, perhaps surprising for many people, portion of our nation demographically and growing very much so into the future. So what do we do with all of this human capital, with these human resources? What can they bring to the nation? Uh, my colleagues have mentioned many, many other things. I would look, look to another vision. If we develop the bilingual, bicultural background of Latinos in the United States, we can become brokers of north-south, south-north culture, politics, commerce, we have the capacity to communicate with most of the people in the whole hemisphere. Guess what? Spanish is the majority language in the hemisphere. And we can develop these resources that we already have within our boundaries to become the educated purveyors of this internationalism or transnationalism. We can develop a new type of society within the, within the boundary of the United States, a transnational, transcultural society. This is a vision for the future. This is not idealism. It comes down to dollars and cents and corporations. And, and just look at one example that we, we know, and that's becoming a major television uh, medium in all of the, the, the large cities in the United States, Univision. The first to broadcast or uh, from Alaska down to Tierra del Fuego via satellite. And you can receive the same programming from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego. That's millions and millions of people and a great economic base. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for, for those very insightful remarks. Um, let's, let's turn first. Um, well, as, as moderator, I'm going to ask a few questions before I open it up to the rest of you in the audience. Uh, but um, so I'm going to. First, turn to the issue on all of us, on all of our minds still, which is the, the election that happened on Tuesday. President um, Obama made history, sworn is, in as the um, first African American president. 
And it was a very joyous, a very moving occasion for all of us who witnessed it here and around the world. As Latino leaders and scholars, what does an Obama presidency uh, mean for Latinos and, and for the future of Latinos in this country? Well, let me just say, uh, I, um, I think it has at least two major points of significance. Uh, one of them is that uh, President Obama has introduced to the country the concept of multiculturalism at the highest levels and throughout the society. I think it's going to have massive implications, not just in government, but throughout the society. It's one of the sort of tectonic shifts that characterized this year, and he personifies it and brings dignity and commands respect, and I think it's hugely significant for all minorities, and uh, Latinos, like other minorities, will be the beneficiaries of that new sense of understanding the diversity, the richness of talent, the breadth of, from which talent comes uh, in this country. Secondly, uh, his program of governance uh, is very aspirational. In fact, early on in the campaign conversations that I was privileged to have with him directly, uh, we discussed the aspirational um, themes that uh, Latinos relate to. Uh, because our population is young, because so much of our future is ahead, because our people are hard workers, because they understand the concept of parents sacrificing today so that their children can have a better life, because we're a faith-based community, etc. All of these kind of forward-looking, inspirational, aspirational themes uh, are important. What does that mean in practical terms? It means focus on education. It means focus on things like health care so that people can have stability in their lives uh, in terms of health and economics. It means people who are hardworking demand uh, a minimum wage and, and grievance procedures and, 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 a better work, and better workplace conditions and a sense of progress from a wage standpoint. Immigration, clearly uh, leaving 12 million people in the shadows uh, in an undocumented state is not what a civilized country wants to do when it needs those workers and owes them at least some kind of minimal legality uh, in terms of, of, of functioning. So all of these kind of aspirational themes that are part of his governing agenda and part of our needs, I think, meet uh, in, in, in what I hope will be a very productive uh, tenure for President Obama. I just briefly add that I think it was both symbolic and substantive for the reasons that Henry's laid out. But I think from a symbolic standpoint, to see a, a man of color, a person of color, take the highest office mm -hmm. of this country gave not just all of us, but what I was really impressed with was how children, young children, were touched by this candidacy somehow. And the fact that he's giving all children of color and really everyone a chance to see a new profile of what our president can look like. And that sends a very strong message of inclusion and diversity that comes, I think, at an important time for our country. And I think the fact that we now have for children uh, a new uh, sense of what a president can look like gives us all a great sense of hope and, and aspiration that anyone can be president. All of, it, all of our kids can be president someday. And mm -hmm. they need to have that aspiration. They should have that aspiration. It's what this country is founded on. And for them to see that at this point, uh, you know, I think the sense of multiculturalism, I think we all 
I think hope for one day when a Latino or a Latina will be president. But the fact that we've made this progress and shown that someone of color adds that new richness in profile uh, that gives hope and aspiration to our young people, I think was very significant. And I would just say on the substance part, um, you know, there were a lot of strong messages in his campaign. And, uh, you know, there were some very specific messages in his campaign. And I think he touched on a lot of the issues that we care about. And I think what we have to do now is to make sure that we can help uh, this president uh, uh, fulfill those promises and hold him accountable for them. And I think that's the real interesting part of where we evolve uh, as a community and hopefully see this administration and, he, and him evolve in terms of, of what his work is to be done. I'm smiling as Janet is speaking. Um, I have a six-year-old at home who has been an Obama fan from the very beginning <laughs> and can only echo the fact that the impact on her life and the importance of this election is profound. I am enormously optimistic as a professional uh, and I guess uh, I've been here long enough that as, as hopeful as I am, I definitely care about the details. Um, and the details are to be determined. The question before the Obama administration is how in today's economy there will be a focus on education, how the, uh, the stimulus will translate into f resources flowing uh, to areas in this country that are Latino and that have great need. I have every hope and expectation that will happen, but for me the, the question is really from the translation of these I big ideas to the specifics in terms of not only appointments within the administration of people who understand these key issues and can prioritize investment in solutions now and then as the things go forward how do we as a country wrestle with the very dire and, and serious agenda that our new president takes on and still sees the great opportunity to act uh, to inspire, but to act on the opportunities that are presented. Like many uh, Latinos, I have been impressed with Obama's personal biography of living in multicultural situations. And not only that, not only the openness of this administration to diversity, but going beyond our borders, his experience in his own lifetime of other cultures, other languages. He knows the world exists out there. He knows how people think in a different manner. They come from various backgrounds and religions, etc. He brings that. There's, I can't remember in our history, a president that has had such a broad and diverse education and really feels it in his bones. Now, let's talk a little bit about translating the big ideas to specific recommendations. If each of you had one minute, and I mean only one minute, with President Obama, what would you tell him? Well, I have a, a kind of a a, 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 a pet cause that I'm going to commit the next number of years to, and that is I believe that one of the greatest gaps that can be closed, one of the greatest areas where we can advance the future of the United States, is the integration of those who are the newcomers, those who are immigrants here, those who are first generation, those who are among the undocumented now, because uh, they are the people who we're going to need. They're the difference between the United States and the trajectory that lies ahead for Japan that's actually losing population, 
France, Germany, Italy, all of them beginning to decline in population because they're not immigrant countries and because they are at near zero population growth. The United States is going to have many issues, but growth is not going to be one of the issues. Latinos are going to see to that. It's just the facts. Um, you could shut the borders today and it wouldn't change that much the trajectory of Latino growth because it is a function of our families are younger and our families are larger. But in order for the United States to compete heads up with the big scale, sophisticated, technological, economic competition that is ahead, vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese, vis-a-vis -vis the Indians, and others who are producing engineers by the hundreds of thousands, etc., it's not good enough for us to say our goal for Latinos is to slow the dropout rate or to stop young people from going to gangs or to end the level of teenage pregnancies. Uh, that's not good enough. What we've got to say is we have to have we have to push our kindergarten children through K through 16, complete college, and going to graduate school, if they are going to be that part that important a part of the population of the United States. So, uh, my my um, I know I'm past the minute. <laughs> our, 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 the commitment to integration of Latinos into the American mainstream. Many already are, the, the, those who uh, Nicolas spoke of who've been here uh, generations. But we have a big part of the population of Latinos that is relative newcomers who have to get beyond the technicalities of citizenship and legalization to how you integrate into the American financial system, uh, educational system, uh, language, and otherwise be prepared to accept the responsibility to help sustain this country. Janet? Yeah, um, of course, I would hope that he'd had his one-minute conversation with Henry, and then I would piggyback on that. <laughs> uh, but basically, look, at NCLR, I know sometimes we get tagged with only talking about immigration because it's so important, but the fact of the matter is, is we're involved both in program and policy on education, on health reform, on education reform, on workforce development. We have a broad brush that we're involved in across the spectrum of issues. <laughs> But I will say this, I think if I had a minute with Obama, I would just say how extremely important it is for him to fulfill his promise to have comprehensive immigration reform. The fact of the matter is, is that until we get that issue off the table, it will inject itself, infect any other legislation that he's trying to move through the Congress. We're already seeing poison pills on the stimulus package, on, on the CHIP bill, the S-CHIP bill, the children's uh, the legal, we're finally getting the legal immigrant kids taken care of as far as as part of the uh, the state children's health improvement uh, programs and stuff but but until we get comprehensive immigration reform and take 12 million people out of the shadows consistent with the values that this country has always proposed we need to get that issue off the table or it will slow his entire efforts to move these other major pieces of uh, of legislation across so I would encourage him to fulfill the promise that he made uh, to seek a, as a priority comprehensive immigration reform. Let's get this issue out there and move on so that we can get to these other major pieces and understand that that's really important priority for us in our community. And since I'm minute three and can build <laughs> off of all of that, our focus would be on support for college going. That in the stimulus package implementation, that we shift this thinking about investing in our future 
meaning investing in young people's pursuit of college. Since the 80s, the whole approach to the support and funding of higher education moved from a time when if you were bright and hard driving, you could get a scholarship and you could afford to go to college to what we have today, which is that young people literally mortgage their future. And this is all people have to mortgage their future to bet on the fact that a college degree will help them pursue a life of, of productivity. This is the time as we are framing the issue of investment that we invest in our people and in terms of we've referenced the need for role models and inspiration and, and how to give our young people ganas to keep going it is so that those hard workers who make it to the point of college entrance get some hard evidence that we really want them and that is that we support their education in very practical ways need-based aid if we look at that for Latino students whether it's state policy or in the case of federal investment if we continue to focus on investing in their future through financial aid for college going we will have the building blocks for a really strong recovery as a college professor and a, uh, Nonprofit publisher, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the walls that we keep bouncing our heads off as Latinos. President Obama, please integrate the national cultural institutions, the National Endowment for the Humanities, National Endowment for the Arts, the Institute for Museum and Library Services, the Smithsonian Institute, and other agencies. We know that the agencies across the board need to be integrated. They need to open up and reflect what the United States look like, looks like and to start serving a broader sector of the population, especially Latinos who have been falling by the wayside for decades. Sure. I, I think it's an important point on the, on, the, on the minute I had with him on immigration. I think to, <laughs> to underscore, you know, not only is it the right thing to do if he wants to get his legislation and our, the legislation that's in the best interest of this country now, but I do worry the expectations among our Latino community are very high, whether that's realistic or not. But we felt like we did turn out. Everybody did too. Everybody else did too. But we felt like we turned out in a unique way. And I worry, uh, quite frankly, that if he doesn't fulfill this promise, that same energy and enthusiasm that we saw turn out could turn against uh, someone who's not seen as having followed through and fulfilled that promise. And I think there's some real political consequences as well as substantive consequences in terms of doing the right thing for this country, there will be political consequences for our leaders who do not understand that we are sending a strong message through that turnout and that we're going to build on that turnout to hold people accountable. At the same time, <laughs> uh, no, I agree totally, but at the same time, one needs to recognize first, there are two major crises before the country at the moment, the economy and the terrorism wars, Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And also, given that we are in a recession, it generally is a time in which it's a very difficult setting in which to talk about uh, uh, things like immigration. So Janet, Janet is completely correct, and yet it's not going to happen in the first year. This is probably something we see over the couple of years. <laughs> Uh, and and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not flacking for the administration. I agree with her. It needs to happen. And I'm certainly, absolutely, totally hopeful that it happens before the four-year cycle of this administration. I hope by the second year or so, the economy is strong enough that the politics of the country can sustain it. We have to keep our eye on the ball. She's totally correct. And I join her in putting the pressure 
for completion of those promises, but we have to have some, some reality and patience that it probably doesn't happen in the first batch of legislation. My guess, just a guess. Well, to, to pick up on that theme, um, we saw, as, as Janet, you mentioned, Latinos coming to the polls in record numbers. But we also saw them shift to Democratic voter, uh, to Democratic candidates, to President Obama over uh, John McCain, in more, as in Florida, um, but overall by a margin of over two to one. Um, what motivated the Latinos to vote and, and to vote for Democrats in, in this election? And going back to the immigration theme, something near and dear to my heart, um, what role did immigration have in, in this election? You want to take that? Well, let me just, I, I think what motivated Latinos was the same thing that motivated Americans in general, and that was the, the desire for change. Um, let me just, again, I have a, a kind of a pet theory here that this was much more than just a change of government, what we saw last Tuesday morning. It was more than change of administrations. There are at least three or four major shifts in the tectonic, tectonic plates in the country. One of them is generational. This is a generational handoff. It was a multicultural awareness, a huge difference in the way people are thinking about the diversity question. It was technologically a change, a new way of campaigning, using the internet and the web for the first time on a really massive scale, right? And there was huge economic change. Fundamental rules of the economy are changing. We're not going to have the same economy when this is over as we did before. So this was like a huge, wrenching social transformation. Latinos understood those things like everyone else, perceived the change, and voted for the person they thought could best manage that change. That's my sense yeah. of what happened. Well, but I'd like to really dig down a little bit deeper. There's no question that that's true. But the fact of the matter is, is if we don't take 2006 as a lesson for the Republicans and what sort of has been happening, but the rhetoric, the extreme rhetoric that came out of the immigration debate, and there's no question our community cares about every issue, including the economy, as Henry talked about. And I don't disagree that we have to restore our economy. I think it's hard to restore the economy and talk about creating new jobs when you're ignoring jobs that are uh, uh, right now filled by 12 million undocumented people. So I do think you have to talk about the economy restoring that first. But there's no question in my mind that the extreme rhetoric that came out of the immigration debate uh, tarnished the Republican brand, uh, the Sensenbrenner Amendment that was pushed, that was the inspiration for the marches, really, I think, spilled over into so many of the uh, 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 things that our community thought about. They thought about the change. They thought, of course, that they wanted a president who was going to deliver on change across a number of issues. But there's no question in my mind that despite, and I really admire uh, John McCain for the position that he personally had taken on immigration and the work that he had done to champion it in the Senate. But the fact is, is that the party uh, really lost its, I think, its compass on this issue and has been out of the mainstream touch of the Latino community when you saw the rhetoric turn into what it did become. And there's no question in my mind that that did spark a movement in our community and it built on that and that's why I believe that dealing with this issue by this new president is so important ultimately and of course it has to happen in the first four years but I think we have to make sure we are pushing to see that it happen uh, as early as possible so that it can help 
so they can get that other legislation through. But there's no question in my mind that the immigration debate affected and the rhetoric coming out of that debate and the strong demagoguery that came out, I don't know if you remember, but in the Republican presidential primaries, right. how every candidate in the Republican uh, presidential primaries, except for McCain, was trying to out Tom Tancredo, mm -hmm. Tom Tancredo. You had all these folks really, uh, you know, talking in extreme ways. And in many respects, our community saw that as very disrespectful because even though we're not immigrants anymore, Dr. Canelos, we see that when they talk about immigrants, they talked about those people. Senator Menendez is quite articulate when he talks about the rhetoric that occurred on the Senate floor in our most august body. And when he heard people talk about those people, they weren't just talking about immigrants. People don't know the difference between who's here legally and who's not. They were talking about all of us. And that's the sentiment that I think we took to the polls in November. Good point. And Nicolas, let's continue on this theme. Um, in, in your essay, you, you talk about um, the contributions, the cultural contributions that Hispanics have added and, and basically helped to transform the American dream because, in part, their unwillingness to renounce their Hispanic culture. Um, and this helps um, strengthen our ties with the rest of Spanish-speaking countries. And, and you talk about the transnational and uh, transcultural bridges that Latinos help create. Um, but given this ugly rhetoric that we heard on the Senate floor, uh, the increase in hate crimes, uh, Lou Dobbs every single day uh, saying all of the anti-immigrant, anti-Latino things that he says. What, what advice would you give to, to Latino youth, to Latino leaders um, in, in the face of these anti-immigrant sentiments? Well, I, our leaders, of course, have to, have to uh, uh, stem the tide of this kind of discussion at, at uh, every opportunity, but it's not new. I mean, since the know-nothing know parties in the 19th century and repatriation campaigns during the de Depression when more than a million people were, were deported, and at every step in the history of the nation when, when immigration is attracted and recruited because of the labor that we need for our factories and fields or because we need manpower for World War I or World War II. Uh, it's been an on and off deal. So we've been through it. We know that, that people are, are, are speaking through their hats and, and it, they make hay out of, out of racism and, and uh, uh, ethnic baiting, what have you. But we just need to know our history to know that we can survive and, and go on to the next step and continue to build this country. I would, I would just add quickly, mm -hmm. I believe that part of the answer is the theme we've tried to strike in this book together, all of us, the authors, which is that America is changing. And a good part of the traditional uh, American population is aging. Many parts of the United States are emptying out. Look at the population patterns in the Midwest, in the in the, that stack of states where Janet comes from, Kansas, <laughs> Oklahoma, uh, 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 Nebraska, the Dakotas, it's a, they're, they're, the, the villages or the communities, the, the towns are emptying out. You know, in, out of 3,100 counties in America, Latinos grew in 2,900 of those counties. I got a problem. <laughs> um, so the fact of the matter is this is 
like it or not, accept it or not, this is the future of the country demographically. Now, is America going to be populated by a population that is large, but poor, undereducated, underproductive, alienated in due course for lack of opportunity? Or is it going to be populated by a, by a community that is large, but has been infused with the education and the, and, and the skills so that it is one of the contributors to the energy, to the creativity, to the productivity that this country is going to need going forward? That, to me, is a very simple proposition. That's what we try to say in this book. And that, hopefully, will advance for Americans the appreciation for what immigrants have been and must be in this country. But in a more complex society where it's not good enough to say, you know, you got a strong back, you can lift bales uh, in the stockyards in Chicago and make a living, you never have to integrate into the rest of society, you know, it was good enough once upon a time. In this society, where you have to have financial literacy, some computer knowledge, you have to have, you know, uh, uh, you, you know children advance in a more complex school setting, et cetera, people need help to get there. That's what we're saying. We've got to figure out how to walk people through a life plan that says, I'm willing to learn English. I, I'm willing to educate myself and improve my skills. I want to see my children advance in school. I, I need some, some introduction into the financial system, the way it works here in contrast to uh, others that I know, my home country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so that we can get past some of these divisive questions and understand if we want to build the future of America, if we want to sustain the future of America, this population is absolutely key, and it cannot be left behind. One of the things that was uh, wonderful as uh, an experience in working on this book uh, is the opportunity for people of uh, great passion, profound commitment to come together and wrestle with these issues and together create a narrative to share with you in the context of this book. I'm glad that this panel is managing to do the same thing. The whole aspect of how Latinos define ourselves, what is it we say about ourselves, how we articulate uh, our uh, relationship with countries of origin and issues of culture, that's part of this whole change process. And to have a president, as we have all said, who has done this himself to be leading the policy making, which is really where, for, for us, the action is. How are we going to respond to this issue of human capital? NCLR has led the effort in terms of the DREAM Act, and we would want, in this rational approach to human capital, for us to confront the crazy notion of multinational corporations recruiting worldwide and yet our public policy uh, disallowing very talented young Latinos who grow up in this country, who want to work in this country, who want to serve to participate. I have the highest expectations that when it comes to putting all of these issues together and then making rational and clear future-oriented public policy it can be done. How, as Latinos, we wrestle with this issue of immigration is a story that will continue, and we've been doing it from our moment being here in this country, or as some would say, when the, when the boundary moved on us. We didn't all immigrate here. <laughs> Sometimes we were here, and somebody defined us out. Janet, last word before we turn it over. Well, I didn't. You had mentioned in your question mm -hmm. Lou Dobbs, and I just can't quite ignore that. <laughs> uh, having had some personal experience yes. there. 
But, you know, I think it's fair to point out that beyond the political rhetoric, what we've seen in the media has contributed to a very negative environment that has affected our community in real adverse ways. And that's not just a perception. We can now document, based on Department of Justice FBI statistics, that the rise in hate crimes against Latinos has gone up 37 uh, percent since 2004. The rise in hate groups has risen 40 percent uh, since 2000. So these are real uh, outcomes. When you start uh, infecting um, the mainstream media with terminology that dehumanizes and demonizes a segment of our population, you really are starting to change a whole mindset of how people view that population. When you refer to them as massive hordes or an army of invaders, when you attribute falsely disease and crime statistics to this segment of the population, and that's repeated over and over, day in and day out. And when there isn't really a good counter platform to offer a different point of view, you know, I've gone on to Lou's show and I've taken him on, but you know, you can only do that so much. We need to have more balance in that media and we need to make sure that the extreme voices aren't taking over the mainstream media mm -hmm. because that can have adverse consequences. And as of late, we've seen murders of our community in hate crimes in, in Long Island, New York. We've seen it in Pennsylvania. And we've seen it, uh, some real awful uh, commentary uh, from, from uh, folks in elected positions in North Carolina, a sheriff, and of course in, in Maricopa County in Arizona. Mm -hmm. Those types of words, hateful words have hateful consequences. And we need to find a way uh, to hold those folks responsible. I had a, a, a message here that Robert Reich uh, just uh, committed uh, to, um, uh, wrote to, uh, in a letter <laughs> to Rush Limbaugh, thank you, Henry, and Sh Sean Hannity and Michelle Malkin. It's worth, it just came on the January 24th. But this is, Robert Reich was talking about the stimulus package. And he was talking about the need to think more broadly about how we're including training for folks to do these jobs. And he did an open letter, it's just a paragraph, I hope you don't mind. In a time like this, when tempers are riding high and many Americans are close to panic about their jobs and finances, you have a special responsibility to consider the accuracy of what you say and the consequences of inflammatory and erroneous statements. In the last few days, manifestingly distorting my words and pulling them out of context, you have accused me of wanting to exclude white males from jobs generated by the stimulus package. Anyone who takes a moment to examine what I actually said and wrote uh, knows this to be an absurd misrepresentation of my position. My goal and always has been to create as many opportunities for as wide group as possible and not to exclude anyone from access. There is and never has been any ambiguity about this. The hate mail I have received since you, your broadcast suggests that the mischievous consequences of your demagoguery are potentially dangerous in addition to being destructive of rational and constructive political discourse. I urge you to take responsibility for your words. Words and ideas have real world consequences and you have demonstrated a cavalier disregard for both. It's just not just the Latino community pushing back on these mainstream media outlets on cable. But you have other folks who are under attack anytime they mention the potential to have reform in some major way. And so we've got to find ways to hold these mainstream media outlets, cable news networks, accountable. I mean, some of the things that we have heard on those outlets is unacceptable. Glenn Beck talking about a quick solution to the energy and immigration crisis. He said we ought to use the dead bodies of undocumented immigrants and, and crush them and make them into mexanol. He said that on his radio program.
That's appalling to Latinos, but it should be unacceptable to anyone in this country to have that kind of language used and not have a reaction out there. So we've got to find ways. We have a website, WeCanStopTheHate.org, where we try to educate folks about who these people are talking about this and what the impact can be on us as a society. But I think the next step has to be that we have to use our economic power and who are the folks advertising on these shows. And we have to show not only political strength at this time, but we have to show the weight of our economic strength and ask folks to not support that kind of language or programming and use our economic power to do that. Why don't we open it up to questions from the audience? Hi, this is Suzanne Gamboa from AP. Can you um, just tell me more about your initiative um, uh, on integration, when you plan to launch it, what specifically you'd like to do? And I'm just I'm wondering if you could just segue it once more into the larger issue that is the theme of your book. Well, um, for the last couple of years, I've been nurturing along a nonprofit effort that we call Our Pledge, uh, at least working title, uh, and Our Pledge, uh, taken from Our Pledge of Allegiance. Um, I hope that 2009 is the year that this can be launched. We have uh, foundation funding from the Knight Foundation and the Broad Foundation, and the idea is to create an entity that will join with others, like the National Council of La Raza and others, uh, in a two-pronged effort. Uh, one is to evangelize, to proselytize, to uh, counter the message, to articulate a message very important, as Janet has made very, very clear today, to get the language right, uh, push back against the mainstream media that is uh, uh, marginalizing people, and articulate for the country at large the significance of immigrants and the role that they play in the American future, the absolutely invaluable role they will play in the American future. I mean, the alternative is to have a future like uh, countries like Japan and Germany and some of these others that are going to have huge problems. Um, they're going to have to they're going to have to import workers and they have no history of immigration. We have a history of immigration. So this is a wonderful salvation for our country if we think about it in the right way. And then the second piece, the second arm of this will be to team up with the network that already exists of churches and nonprofits and schools and begin to offer a kind of uh, 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 educational curriculum, if you will, that focuses on how people integrate into American society. Um, English classes, which are oversubscribed now, we need more of it. Um, helping parents understand the way the schools work here and how they can help their children advance in school, hugely important. Uh, financial literacy, how to get their feet on the ground on basic financial transactions and then more sophisticated ones beyond that, like retirement planning and so forth. Involvement in the civic life of the country, um, voting, participation, civic engagement at the school level, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But a, in effect, a kind of a regimen that says, this is a life plan, and, and you can learn the elements of this life plan. That's, in 25 words or less, what, what we hope to put together. Okay, we had a question way in the back, if, and then we'll work our way. Can I, just while you're getting, yeah. just, I would just reinforce the need for English language classes. I think there's some irony out there when we keep facing English-only initiatives. And the fact of the matter is, is that our community wants to learn English. They know that the only way to be successful in this country is to have that language knowledge. But yet, it's often community-based organizations, nonprofits, who are the ones providing it. There's not been a major infusion 
of federal resources mm -hmm. or quite frankly foundations have done some of that but we need to see more of an investment if we're going to really integrate mm -hmm. this community and have them be the asset that they can be for the future uh, our folks are hungry to learn English those that are new immigrants and that the issue isn't a desire to learn English it's really about having the right uh, resources and support to do it and our opponents in playing wedge politics play both sides of this question they will say they don't speak English and yet when English programs are offered we'll oppose them on the grounds that if they learn English they will stay and so they play both sides of it and it's unacceptable and we just simply need I mean you go back to my one minute with President Obama when I when I answered immigrant integration it would be actually involving some of the entities of government Homeland Security and other key, key, key roles in the integration process. That's why I said beyond legalization, beyond citizenship, those are not enough. They're technical points that you cross you from one legal status to another, but they don't integrate you into the society without a whole series of other things in a complex, modern, sophisticated, financially interwoven, technological society. People need more help than they did in the 1900s. Let's hear from you. My name is Sarah Melendez, and I'm here representing the Board of Directors of the Latino Federation of Greater Washington. I want to say hello to my friends up on the dais, and thank you for this uh, wonderful panel. Um, I'm very concerned. I mean, I love every, almost everything I heard Obama say. I volunteered for him, I sent him money, and I, and I voted for him, certainly, and rejoiced along with everybody else. But I'm, I'm concerned that people are already talking about the post-race society. And I'm concerned that for the last eight or 10 years, we've had people saying, this is no longer about race, it's about class. And these people just have to get an education and, and get jobs and, you know, and they're gonna be fine. Well, guess where they're gonna start cutting when they have to cut back at schools and colleges and universities and everywhere else? All the programs that help our people, the poor and people of color. We already know that in many states around the country, our children are being left behind with the no child left behind. The states very often, including Massachusetts and California, who, which were leaders before, don't even mention any special services for Latino kids or allocate any special money for non, no child left behind for Latino kids. And when we ask them, you know what they say? Oh no, but they're included in everything. And we know what happens when we're just included and not mentioned or singled out. So I would hope that we could prevail upon all the Latinos who have become rich in the last 20 years to put some of their money the way Ward Connerly does into fighting all of this right-winging stuff because it's coming back. And I would also urge all of you, including uh, the moderator, that um, we continue doing these wonderful kinds of panels but let's include other Latinos who are not Mexican-American only, because 33% of Latinos are not. And, um, and sometimes we have a little bit different perspective on the same experience. And I can I help you actually, find some if you need them. <laughs> we, we actually have, 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 have a Cubana, Cubana a Puerto Rico. <laughs> when I saw the program, I saw the panelists were three Latinos. <laughs> and I said, they're all wonderful. I mean, three uh, Mexican-Americans. Mexican I didn't mm -hmm. see Canellos first. And, and, and you're all great. I love you all. But there are others who may have something to say, too. Thank you. Sarah, uh, the, the, um, your point about the post-racial uh, categorization, I do think, I mean, that was m my reason for the comment about um, 
we are defining for ourselves. Uh, from a policy standpoint, uh, the one profound contribution of No Child Left Behind was the use of demographic data in terms of looking at student achievement. And from a practical level, to abandon that, uh, let's rename uh, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act when we reauthorize it. But as a practical level, we do need to stay focused on that. In terms of being post-anything, uh, the fundamental aspect of this exercise is who is uh, in need, how do we respond to it, and what do we do? And so um, I, your comments just uh, allow me one more time to say that at Excelencia in Education, we believe the marriage of practical information in terms of performance data for human capital, for all people, now let's look specifically for Latinos, look at the public school system, see which places are doing well, what the practices are that produce those results, how do we replicate them, what do we do? I mean, to merit, to, just to echo your point, this is getting in the weeds here, but you know, the Department of Education has a what works clearinghouse, and it's been offering it for the last eight years. And yet if you ask them what works for Latinos, which is what most educators and policymakers ask, they can't answer that question because the methodology is such that it's good. The, the ability, not necessarily as a civil rights issue, although passionately and personally I can make that point, but as a public policy issue, the demographics of our country, who performs well, what serves their needs, and how do we advance that? That is the decision-making agenda before this administration right now. And I think it's imperative for all of us to be well-informed what serves our community well, what are those practices, how can they be replicated. And while I definitely support the idea of private sector investment or foundation support, since we're here in Washington, let's look first at the Obama administration and make sure the decisions that are made here are very tactical in their ability to serve Latinos. Okay, let's go in the back, the gentleman with the brown vest, and then we'll work our way towards the front. Oh, yeah. Um, excuse me. Chester Hartman from PRAC, the Poverty and Race Research Action Council. Wondering, I haven't seen the book, so I may be in there, but I'm wondering what comments you folks might have about the relationship of the largest minority to the second largest minority. I mean, the potential and reality for black-brown conflict in economics and politics all over the place is enormous. And what do you see both in the immediate and the slightly longer-range future about that issue? We don't uh, speak to it in the book directly, but um, I'm personally optimistic on this front because of what is occurring at the local level. Uh, places like Los Angeles, where uh, Mayor Villaraigosa has the support of the African-American community. Uh, people asked me during the campaign whether Latinos would support Barack Obama because uh, there's some instances in the past where in a given place Latinos were not supportive of the African-American candidate. I said quite the contrary. There's a strong record of support. Uh, Willie Brown was the mayor of San Francisco. Uh, mayor Bradley in Los Angeles. Harold Washington in Chicago. David Dinkins in New York. Uh, Lee Brown in Houston, Ron Kirk in Dallas. Let's go on around the table mm -hmm. where Latinos were part of the coalition that supported uh, uh, African Americans coming to power. So I think there is, uh, you know, ample evidence of how people collaborate. That's not to say it's not without its conflicts of politics and sometimes even that break out more violently than that, as we saw in Liberty City in Miami a few years ago. But for the most part, we have the mechanisms in our society to have a dialogue, a conversation, a trading, you know, compromise, negotiations, transactions, political transactions, 
And I, 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 I believe that sophisticated African-American leaders like President Obama, who understands that he would probably would not have won Nevada or New Mexico or perhaps even Virginia, uh, uh, Florida, without very strong, unprecedentedly strong Latino votes, both in numbers and in percentages, right? is going to, going to observe and respect the need for a transactional relationship. I just might want to add a point on that, and, and it, I'm really not piling on the media. I, I have a great appreciation <laughs> for, for the media. But one of the things that I have noticed is that when we read stories about the growth of our community, there is a tendency in the media to create a wedge as well. They talk about our growth as we're winning versus others. And, you know, it's sort of like winners versus losers. There's sort of a, a wedge to the way these stories are written. And I think we have to resist that and reject that because the fact of the matter is, as all of us know, there's more that unites our communities than divides us. And we have absolute so much at stake in coming together to advance common agendas that will lift all of us. And that's really important, but I, I do note that there are some folks who want to create an issue here. I do, I will say that at the national level, I feel like there has been a lot of effort to reach across. I know for NCLR, we've had Mark Moriel, president of the Urban League, not only has he spoken to our conferences, but we've engaged with them on partnerships around foreclosures and helping both the folk communities come out of this in a time when we can help save some of their homes. But, you know, Al Sharpton has spoken at our conference, Jesse Jackson, Tavis Spiley had a town hall at our conference. But the real important dialogue really has to start beginning at the local and community levels. And I think there is a hunger for that among certainly our affiliates to do that. And we're going to be looking for opportunities to create more of that exchange because the more that we can have that dialogue yeah. and understanding at the local level uh, is going to be when we're really making breakthroughs to create the movement that we need for all uh, for these common agendas to move forward. Okay, let's go to um, up front the gentleman in the red Charlie shirt. Charlie Erickson, yeah. you can't overlook him. Mm -hmm. the, the Dean of Latino News. Thank you, thank you. All right, thanks, yeah. Uh, my question relates, we hear a lot about assimilation and assimilation works both directions. And how important is it that uh, Hispanics retain Spanish and that what are organizations doing to help that uh, retention continue in the United States or are we going, I think most people are going to learn English anyway, that's pretty well, the studies show that, a generation or two, they're, they're all very much English speaking. Are we going to abandon that element of the culture, Spanish, just to conform to a broader society and what is La Raza or other organizations doing about the retention of Spanish? Been Go, ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Nick made the point beautifully. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, when we're talking about tapping the towns and developing the resources of Latinos in the United States, we're obviously talking about preserving the Spanish language and making it a national uh, treasure, something that we can build uh, education, uh, business, commerce, not only in domestic but international levels. At the universities around the country, there is a movement now to take Spanish, for instance, out of the foreign language department, recognizing that Spanish, in effect, de facto, is a second national language. And that Spanish language education from 
bilingual or K all the way up through graduate school is something that we have to think about. We, we need to prepare our students to operate in a Spanish-English, English-Spanish world. That's not to move against other languages or to say that people shouldn't be bilingual in English, Portuguese, German, uh, Russian, Japanese, Chinese, etc. That's all moving forward. We need to move all of, and there's even some movement to take some, you know, a Mandarin, for instance, out of the foreign language programs and recognize that this is a part of the education that should be shared among all Americans and that can help develop their individual career. And so when we end bilingual education, for instance, at the second or third grade level, and then all of a sudden expect kids to get, only get their education in English, we're doing a great disservice to them. We need to maintain the Spanish language because it's a national resource. Why are we throwing languages away? Whether or not we place uh, the language in foreign language or uh, domestic language, uh, one of the indicators of uh, the response by Americans to this issue of multi multilingual abilities, you have to only look at, um, particularly at uh, suburban middle class school districts. The growth of language uh, as an offering, uh, starting in kindergarten, um, the, the growth of dual immersion programs, um, the increase in terms of the international baccalaureate with a heavy emphasis on language means that, uh, at least to me, uh, that we have strong indications that as a community, as a country, our people are very receptive to this idea of language. And the higher you go on the socioeconomic level are very much aware that they, their children will live in a multilingual world. So that the, the question of language has a lot to do with who's making the judgment and what we will provide. I would suggest that the more we offer it um, as a skill set rather than remediation, the more all of us as Americans will get over it. We'll no longer be the butt of the joke. You know, the, the, the people who can only speak one language are Americans. Um, that, that we will be able to be global in our language ability as in everything else. That, uh, look, we find it fundamentally important to make sure that uh, we can play a role, certainly where the challenges for our, our young people and students exist. Uh, right now, we've been so focused on making sure our folks, our, our young children, our students are in uh, English language learners, many of them. 20% uh, of our kids in public schools are Latino. Half of them are English language learners. And if we aren't getting those folks transitioned into those mainstream classrooms so that they're able to learn, we're failing. We're not going to achieve that well-educated society that Henry talked about. Of course, should we be preserving multiple languages? Of course, that shouldn't even be an issue. And we should have school systems that promote not just learning one language, but many languages. If we're going to have this you know, uh, geopolitical world and the global economy that we see happening, we're going to absolutely need access to multiple languages. And for our culture, it's going to be especially important to make sure we can have that preservation. Uh, Dr. Canellas talked about Spanish being the language of the hemisphere. If we're going to have any interaction and growth within this hemisphere to help each other, we need to absolutely maintain that. It's hard for us to find resources when we're trying to do ELL uh, transitioning to, to do all of this. But 
I think our parents understood, my parents understood how important it was for us to preserve that language. Although, you know, there's different experiences. Folks in Texas will tell you about how their parents forbade them from speaking Spanish because they wanted their kids to be part of the society. Hopefully we don't have to have that kind of attitude anymore and we see that in this 21st century we need to be about not just preserving Spanish but learning every other language that's going to help us grow this country and, and be part of, of the rest of the world. God gave us brains that do not require that we <laughs> remove one fact in order to intrude another. So it is possible to learn English without having to forget Spanish. It is possible to live in a society where one can work in the American mainstream and, and respect our cultural heritage and our families, where it is possible to relate to American political ideals and not give up our faith-based religious traditions. I mean, life is complex that way, but we're set up as human beings where we can do that. And, um, and, and it's certainly true for, for Latinos. It's maybe a more challenging existence, but it's one that we have lived and, and we've proven that we can do it. Um, on the issue of assimilation versus acculturation, if assimilation means forget your heritage to assimilate totally into the mainstream society, that's one view. Culturation has tended to mean, you know, live in enclaves and sort of keep culture and deal with the majority society at arm's length. I would argue those are both obsolete concepts and that that's why I focus and we focus in this book on the concept of integration, which means figuring out how to become a constructive, contributing part of the mainstream society, even as we keep our heritage. I think that is possible. Now, let me, at the risk of delving into controversial territory, at the turn of the last century, there was a movement that focused on, quote, Americanization. And it became a very negative thing because people said Americanization means, you know, complete adoption into every aspect of American life and leave your culture behind. I think we need to recapture the phrase Americanization and use it basically as the flip side of the coin that, that, that is Hispanization. People talk about Hispanization of the United States as the, the dynamic of this growth that we've been describing. And one of the things that's going to be profoundly and notably different about the United States 20 years from now is the presence of Hispanic names and people and, and, and architecture and culture and music and movies and in every aspect of American life. But the flip side of that is the Americanization of Latinos. And that's not a negative idea. That's not something where you have to give something up because America is a broad enough and diverse enough place that the new concept of Americanization can be we're all in this together and we're all going to make our contribution. into uh, college, but the, the reality with the American school system is that we pretty well eliminate uh, the child's first teacher when we don't allow uh, all those monolingual Spanish speakers, for example, to take part in the uh, educational equation. So uh, do you see that you have to really start at, at kindergarten level and to make sure that we take a full advantage of those parents who can speak Spanish but who are not really given good access to the educational system. The most productive school districts with large Latino populations do exactly that. 
Um, I just uh, was with uh, Charles Reed, the chancellor of the California State University System. Um, he talks uh, very robustly about a program called PIKE, the Parent Institute for Quality Education. Its fundamental approach is exactly that, that the, the recognition that the parents of a child um, are their advocates and that whatever the talents are that the family brings into the building, you build on that and you move forward. What The main point that I would want to make now and that I make in the chapter and that we make every day at Excelencia is that how to do that is known. Could it be improved? Absolutely. But we're not starting from scratch. The issue on the table right now is are we going to invest in the strategies that have been documented, in the programs that produce results for Latinos? That is the question. I'm an optimist. I believe that we will do that. I believe that this administration will want to respond. But I think that the issue before us is not how do we take these amorphous issues and turn them into tactical responses. We know how to do that. The question is, will we do it with intensity? Will we do it and deliver results? And will we do it before the 2010 census? Because I, for one, have gone through this decade since, the, since America discovered Latinos in the last census, fully expecting that this whole scale discussion about statistics would at some point be manifest in turning on the faucet of talent. That has not happened yet. It can happen. You can see that there are many people who want it to, but the question on the table is where will it happen first and how all of us who care about that issue will advocate for those results being national. And I would just add to that. I agree with everything uh, Sara has said, and, and the Excellency in Education has been a great champion for that. I would just say, as a general point, the need to invest in early child education, period. Period. If we did nothing but expand the opportunities for our kids to be part of, of early Head Start programs and Head Start programs and preschool programs, do you know the trajectory and what the research shows for the chances for our kids to succeed? And while we want to do everything at every level, I know there's the bookends and we want to get folks at the end of their high school and on to college, but I'm telling you, the research is there. We don't have to reinvent the wheel here. We know what can work, and if we can see that commitment uh, to investing in early child education, we won't just be lifting our Latino kids, we'll be lifting all of our kids and making that investment in advancing our country to have those kids be successful and contributors in the future for all of our country. You've been waiting. Thank you. Uh, Peggy Ochowski, I'm with the Hispanic Outlook. Um, it seems, thanks for answering the question about integration and assimilation. I was going to ask that, the difference, because it seems like it's now politically incorrect to use assimilation and everyone uses integration. So I, I thought that was interesting. Um, it, it seems like NCLR, particularly, on, on so many of your issues, you, you are advocating for the, the especially uh, the children who are here illegally. But I'm wondering about the DREAM Act. Um, as you know, uh, the, the children of temporary immigrants, especially the ones of, who have the H-1Bs, uh, highly skilled workers, when their children graduate from high school, and many of them are, are, very, are very good students, um, they do not get in-state tuition. They do not qualify for scholarships. So I'm wondering if in your DREAM Act you will also advocate for um, all immigrant children to get in-state tuition. I, I think it's it's a hard argument to ask for benefit for people who are here illegally that legal immigrants and even, of course, American students who don't live in state don't get. 
became a stronger champion for legal kids on this S-CHIP bill than NCLR. So we argue for all of our kids, and we will continue to advocate for all of our kids. And there's no reason why children have to be punished for the acts of their parents. These kids, well, I just want to make a point, because you seem to make a distinction between undocumented children and those who are here legally. And all I'm saying is that as a society and as a country, our values in this country are not built on distinguishing between children and who should have access to either health care or education. As a, our values are better uh, represent that long history of investing in children and having all children achieve their God-given potential. I'm happy to deal with that question, but I want to clarify that. I understand that. I understand, but you didn't talk to me. You didn't make that distinction. And I think, I, yeah, I understand that, but you made a different distinction. Uh, but I want to make another point on the on the DREAM Act, look, we'll, we are advocating for the DREAM Act, but the real solution and the short answer to your question is that we have to have comprehensive immigration reform. Once we start picking out different provisions and, and saying we're going to focus just on H-1Bs or H-2As or any of these different groups without looking at the whole reform that's necessary, you're going to get one end of the system that bubbles up at the other end of the system. We need comprehensive immigration reform if we're going to deal with all of these issues in a fair and effective way. We know that we want to have a restoration of the rule of law. We support that, but uh, we need to make sure that we're looking at all aspects of immigration reform and not trying to do this in a piecemeal fashion. Let me, one last question and then we'll end. Yes. The gentleman in the brown sweater. My name is Todd Wiggins. I have an online blog called Urban Revival Media. I wanted to ask a quick question uh, about uh, Arizona, the state of Arizona and its significance beyond the Super Bowl that's coming up next weekend. Uh, Ms. Uh, Napanatano, who you're very familiar with, is the incoming Department of Homeland Security director, has uh, been criticized for her handling of uh, issues as far as the border is concerned and the ability to actually maintain security on the border. And she's, you know, of course, being brought here to Department of Homeland Security. Do you have any question or, th I mean, thought, I'm sorry, thoughts about that as to whether that uh, criticism is deserved or what would you say to Ms. Napolitano if you had an opportunity to speak with her? Um, you want to, you want to, I'll be happy to take the first crack at that. Um, look, I think uh, she's been from a border state, and I think uh, there have been different mixed reviews of her within the Latino community overall. But I am going to give her the benefit of the doubt, and I believe that she understands this issue because she has been at a border state. And I believe that she's going to reinforce and enforce uh, not only the laws, but uh, uh, try to uh, look at them through the filter that President Obama mm -hmm. has, has spoken about. And I believe that she will be someone who will be looking for uh, all the interests that are at stake here and uh, is someone that we can work with. Uh, so we intend to work with her and reach out to her, and I know that uh, she is certainly open to hearing from uh, folks from all sides on this. And I think ultimately uh, her experience will give her uh, a depth on this that will be positive. And I expect her uh, to act in a way consistent with the Obama uh, promises and rhetoric on, on this issue. I think Janet's exactly correct. I would have stated exactly the same way. I would simply add that uh, the final version of immigration reform which, at least when I say final, I mean that which approached legislation and which we hope will once again emerge, has three pieces. It starts with the recognition that a nation, in order to be a nation, has borders and has to have some command of its borders. If you don't, then what is a nation? 
So that's point number one. There is an issue of, of, of border security. Secondly, guest worker programs, because we have 12 million people in the country who are here in the shadows and who should not live that way. We don't want to create a, a, an apartheid condition for people who are, we need for workers, but we don't want to give them basic rights. And then thirdly, a path to citizenship, because to create a class of people who are legal but have no, no rights to citizenship is a second cl secondary class. So uh, those three elements are key. Now, one can debate what border security means. I happen to think that a wall is not a very effective way to do this. Um, and it causes all kinds of international problems with Mexico and a lot of other problems with it. And there are, you know, fine print that Janet Napolitano had to deal with as the governor of Arizona on the border security, security questions. But let's, let's acknowledge going in that a nation, to be a nation, has to have some sense of, of, of command of its borders. And, 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 and that is an, a critical element of immigration reform because without it, you can't stop the flow and say, okay, we're dealing with everybody who's here but on a freeze frame basis. And so it, 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 you know, these, three, these three legs of this stool each are important. And there, it, I, there won't be immigration reform politically without all three legs of that stool. I think, um, going to your question, um, I think the, the quote of Secretary Napolitano that I see most often is, if you build a 50-foot fence, then immigrants will build a 51-foot ladder. Um, so that's illustrative of her views with respect to the, the need, the, the effectiveness of the fence and the need for a comprehensive reform. Well, um, on that um, last word, um, I want to thank everyone for coming today and our speakers especially, and um, your recommendations not just to President Obama, but to all of us on how we can work together and, and um, make sure that um, Latinos become an important part of America's future. Thank you, Esther, and thank you very much for being here, folks. And, yeah. and one last word. And staying. The book is available in the lobby for those of you that have not had an opportunity to purchase it.